0: All right, a couple words about Advent before we read Isaiah. So actually, if you have a Bible, you can open to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to begin at the very end of chapter 8. Advent is this season that church throughout history has celebrated together, a time, again, to prepare ourselves, anticipate the celebration of the birth of Christ. The word Advent itself means a coming or an arrival. And it's a season that the church has set aside to reflect on the incredibly good news that God took on the form of a man through the birth of Jesus and walked and lived among us and, of course, ultimately leading to our great redemption through his death and resurrection. So over the next four weeks, we're going to light some candles. Each week we'll light another candle here on this Advent wreath that you see up here in the front as sort of a visual way to anticipate the birth of Jesus, and then we're going to sit in a couple of texts, one from the Old Testament, this passage from Isaiah, and then one in a couple of weeks from the New Testament as we think about why this particular season is so important to us as Jesus followers. So our text today is Isaiah, and we're actually going to begin in chapter 8, verse 20, and we're going to read through chapter 9, verse 7. To the teaching and to the testimony... They will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. But the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder
1: We enter into this Advent season, and as Pastor Steve mentioned, the reason for the season is to prepare us for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, the first time Christ came was a couple of thousand years ago when he came as a meek baby born in Bethlehem. A second coming of Jesus will be different. This will be in full glory, and this celebration of Christmas actually wasn't even celebrated or didn't even exist at the birth of Christ or nearly four centuries afterward you know this is something that the church has put in its calendar for just the last 1600 years and for the next several weeks we want to prepare our hearts for this season so we don't lose sight of what we as christians are celebrating now verses six and seven that were read those are verses that are very familiar to the christian church during christmas time right for unto us a child is born to us a son is given and all those attributes of Jesus, and then into verse 7. Those verses are read, I think, during Christmas time, and we have very positive thoughts. We have very nice thoughts about Jesus and what this prophecy is talking about in Jesus. And we often leave out the verses preceding this, which is why we went back to chapter 8, verse 20, which is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at chapter 8, verse 20, up until verse 5 of chapter 9, and then we'll get a little bit more Christmasy. Look at verse six more in depth next week. But this is kind of setting the table for the real Advent, right? Not just your like cuddly Jesus in a manger and and you know angels and all this kind of stuff. This has nothing to do with the consumerism that we experience in our society and culture, or the materialism of the world, which has hijacked the real Christmas. So we're going to try to. Prepare our minds and our hearts for Advent, and in order to do that, we can't just look at verses 6 and 7. We have to kind of look at what came before and not just look at the sanitized version of Jesus and Christianity. So, welcome to our church. Now, before we dive into these verses, we need to understand that we are studying world history These are events that actually happened, that this prophecy wasn't just some sort of made-up story, but this was a foreshadowing of things to come. These are historical events, and Jesus was a historical person. History that is verified by historians outside of the Christian faith, namely Roman and Jewish historians who affirm and confirm this history. Now, the person of Jesus was a historical person, and no sane historian would ever dispute that. But he didn't just appear out of thin air. Paul writes for us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent Jesus. It didn't just happen. God sent him. And the way he arrived was not going to be like uh, Superman or you know something... He didn't fall out of the sky, right? And Mary and Joseph adopted him. And while Joseph got pinned down by a donkey, he, Jesus lifted up the donkey at three years old. And, uh, you know, anyway, those of you who have Superman, appreciate that. He was born of woman. He was born of woman. You look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. This is in reference to Jesus, victorious over darkness. You go back to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. God's plan all along was Jesus, like all the way back to Genesis. Before he was born of woman, the designs to save the world were already in motion, just waiting for this moment when the fulfillment of time had come. Then God sent Jesus, God incarnate, to take on human flesh, live amongst the world, to bear the sins of the world. It's the grace of God to bear the sins of those who have no way to save themselves. Not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. And I know that one of the challenges for some people regarding the Christian faith is how can God let some people perish because they don't have faith in Jesus? I mean, how can that happen? But God does not wish for this to happen. God did not design for this to happen. We studied Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter wrote, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But God won't force anyone to love him. He's not a tyrant. He's not some barbarian. And a problem that people may have with God is that not everyone is saved. But what do those people want? A freedom of choice? Or to be forced into love, which isn't love at all? So do you see the contradiction? You can't have it all those different ways. And so God has set it up from the beginning that Jesus redeems us, reconciles us to him, and we're given this opportunity for love. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then you skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. None of this was a surprise. This stuff didn't just happen. In Matthew's biography, in the Gospel of Matthew, it was written where Jesus would be born. Matthew chapter 2 has that story. We're just going to read 5 and 6. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Verse six is from Micah, the prophet Micah, and that references Micah chapter five, verse two. None of this was a surprise. Now the first coming of Jesus was not just some random thing. It's not just something that just happened. This was a span of thousands of years of prophecies culminating and coming to fruition with the arrival of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus is not any different. We have the word of God. It has been a couple thousand years since his first coming, and it has been prophesied for us that he's coming again. After Jesus' resurrection, he taught two of his followers everything the prophets wrote about him on the road to Emmaus. If you recall that story, that's in Luke chapter 24. And in verse 27, Luke records for us, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament contains so many prophecies about Jesus and it's not random that from the beginning that the redemptive plans of God through Jesus were designed because God loves us it's all recorded for us in the Bible beginning with Genesis and either Jesus is real or he's not Jesus can't be real to you and to me and not to somebody else just factually speaking he's either real or he's not and so He's either God or he's not. He's either our Savior or he's not. He's either Lord or he's not. He's either the source of creation or he's not. And this is what Paul wrote of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, either Paul and every single Christian who has ever existed in the history of the world is just crazy to believe a lie, or this is true. I mean, where's the in-between? You're you're nuts and a liar, or this is true. There's no in-between. He's like, sort of true, sort of lie, sort of crazy. It's either you're one or the other. Because do you hear the claims of Christianity? Christians are absolutely crazy liars, or this is the absolute truth? Why would you fall in-between? There is no in-between. Either Christians are people who have seen the light or they are blinded by their lies and their craziness and their darkness. There's no in-between. Now, according to the Bible and the world history, Christians are people of light. But it's not by the Christians doing. It's all because of Jesus. And this is the story of the gospel. Jesus saves us. Jesus saves sinners. People want to make Christianity about morality or about politics or about things that are secondary to the reason that Jesus came if you're looking for the just simple reason why Jesus came he came to save us it's not all this other stuff if you were drowning and you were about to die does it matter if the person who saved you was a democrat or a republican i mean does it matter Does it matter what they are for or what they are against if they just came to save you? Does it matter? I mean, wouldn't you just be thankful that they saved you? Who cares? Who cares if they had a third eye? Who cares if they had a tail? It doesn't matter. Right? Do we realize that we are dead without Jesus and he came to save you? doesn't matter how different your beliefs are to him that you have a savior that came to save us how about just simply being thankful and then figuring out why he gave up his life to save you instead of having all these other things that are on the periphery and secondary trying to figure those things out first and then going to the savior but just simply coming and saying like all right you saved me so like why do you have a tail How about discovering first who Jesus really is rather than creating the image of what you want him to be and coming around about that? Now a little bit of background on Isaiah before we look at our verses this morning. The book of Isaiah was written 700 years before the incarnate Jesus was born. And during this time, it's just a time of anarchy in the kingdom. The kingdom's divided, the ten northern tribes of Israel. They were friendly with the Assyrians, didn't want anything to do with God. The two southern tribes, Judah, they were trying to remain faithful to the ways of King David and and faithful to that. And so this is a kingdom divided. And in the middle of this chaotic time, Isaiah 6 gives us the story of his encounter with God and how he became a prophet. Now Isaiah knew who he was in the eyes of God. He records this for us in chapter 6, verse 5. He writes, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now something about Isaiah that is just really great and an incredible lesson for us is that he was available. He made himself available to serve God. You look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said... Here I am. Send me. So God used Isaiah in this chaotic time. God used him to prophesy to the world the arrival of the child, Jesus, who would save the world. Chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And so over 700 years go by until the actual birth of Jesus. And God used Isaiah to let the world know Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, and God still uses his word today, letting the world know Jesus is coming. He's coming again. That Christmas isn't just a celebration of Jesus' first coming, but he's coming again. Now let's look at chapter 8, verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Let's look at this phrase, speaking contemptuously against their God. And also, and they will look to the earth. Because doesn't this sound so much like our world today? Speaking contemptuously against God, looking to the earth for our answers, for our explanations. People looking to the earth rather than to God. People looking to the earth, which only leads to this further darkness, this thick darkness, rather than the teaching and the testimony of God, back in verse 20, which leads to the dawn of hope, the dawn of redemption. Now, what is this thick darkness of spoken in verse 22? We find this in chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The people of God have moved to resettlement camps. These guys are refugees. They've never been able to settle because the powers around them have destroyed their homes. They have oppressed them. They have overtaken them. And in their anguish, they moved into this thick darkness. But out of this thick darkness comes a great light. What is this speaking about? What prophecy was Isaiah writing about, 700 years before it happened, you look to Matthew chapter 4. This is where Jesus was tempted by the devil, the temptations of Jesus, and this is also when his cousin John the Baptist was arrested, imprisoned. And so we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that What was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, fulfilled by Jesus, found in Matthew chapter 4. Now, the anguish and the distress of people who were looking for something other than God. And by God's grace, he provided a light out of that thick darkness. Isaiah was given by God, right? That's the spiritual gift of prophecy to write down for us what will take place 700 years before it actually happened. And if you look at verse 7, it tells us How? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How will this anguish, this distress, this darkness of people be conquered by the light? Through the zeal of the Lord of hosts. The zeal of God. Now this is something that God does and there is plenty of evidence in the Bible of God's light overcoming the darkness. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. There are so many biblical references about God as light and darkness. Let me just go through a few of them, but the Bible is chock full of them. Here's another one, Job chapter 12, verse 22. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. Psalm 18, verse 28. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. Psalm 139, verse 12. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. The Bible is full of verses of God's light conquering darkness. Let me share with you one more. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are creatures of darkness. We are on the dark side. I'm just kidding. Aren't you excited for that movie? It's just, it's John chapter 3. Verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's still today. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Only God brings us from darkness To light. And when that happens, it's time to party. It's party time. There's a reason to celebrate. You look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, John wrote After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in His white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is reason for us to celebrate now as Jesus has already come once. There will be reason for us to celebrate at His second coming at this time of harvest when all we've done for Jesus is going to pay off. It pays off and we celebrate a job well done. Verse 4, back in Isaiah, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the light has pierced the darkness. We will celebrate as on the day of Midian. And this is in reference to Judges chapter 6 and 7, right? The story of Gideon. Gideon was sent by God to free Israel from the Midians, but he was from the weakest clan. And not only that, but he was the weakest in his family. And so God calls him this mighty man of valor, just this guy who's like from the weakest clan and the weakest in his own family. And he's like, are you kidding? Me? Man of valor? But it's not because Gideon was so great. It's because God is great. And it's because God is with him. And so he starts out with this army that numbered in the tens of thousands, but God kind of dwindles it down and dwindles it down and leaves him with 300. 300 to battle the more physically powerful Midian. So it was just absolutely clear that this victory wasn't Gideon and this army of 300, that this victory belonged to God. This is God's victory. Which is the point Isaiah is making here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4. That the light overcoming the darkness, the victory in celebration, the deliverance from oppression, all of that, it's God. It's all God. Now verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So Christmassy, isn't it? I mean, this... Yet the next verse is kind of like the Christmas verse, but like the verse before. I mean, whoa, what? But do you read of the freedom there? This freedom, and it's all God. And you look at the history of Israel. You talk about a yoke of burden, just looking at the people of the historical Israel, and you talk about the rod of oppression, and you just look at Israel throughout. You look at the life of the Jews throughout history. And you can really sense this yoke of burden, the rod of oppression. And you can track their history all the way back to Moses in Exodus until today. Back in Exodus with Moses, they were slaves under the Egyptians. And throughout history, we see God delivering them from oppressors over and over and over again. And so going back to Jesus, who has delivered us from our burdens and the consequences of our sin. Jesus, who took that oppression from us over and over in the generations before you, over and over again, the anguish, the burdens, the darkness from sin, he took on all those penalties, that death upon himself, and he sets us free on the cross. There may be some here who have not accepted the sacrifice of Jesus by faith for themselves, and perhaps you look to the earth. You look to the earth, you look to the world for answers when what Jesus did was a historical event that no one can deny happened. And you have the burdens that no one else can take. Even if they wanted to take them, they can't take them. And Jesus has already paid it all for everyone, but you need to believe. You need to have the faith. And no matter what burden you're carrying now, Jesus can set you free from it. He can free you from it. God has been bringing people from darkness to the light since the creation of humankind. There is freedom in Christ. You come to Jesus to be free from whatever is oppressing you. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus taught in a synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath and picking up the story in verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus already came to set us free. It's already done. Do you believe that? Now there's a battle for your soul that is happening right now. And we see the fighting manifest in physical ways all over the world, whether they are between nations, whether they are within families or marriages or communities. But do you know that there's a war being fought for your soul right now? And sin has separated us from God, and Jesus brings light into the darkness. He brings peace. He brings freedom. Back to verse 5 in Isaiah 9. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So here's the picture. No more war. No more fighting. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Peace. The real peace. Like freedom that only God can do. And how? Through Jesus. Now you notice that verses 6 and 7 were preceded by Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, and on. And you read of the distress, the hunger, the anguish, the burden, the oppression, until we get to verse 6, all lifted by Jesus, the child, a child, to deliver us into the light to experience joy, peace, and freedom. And what form does God choose to use? Now isn't this kind of unexpected? If you're reading chapter 8 verse 20 all the way until chapter 9 verse 5 and you're looking for like some deliverance aren't you thinking like a cavalry of angels and Jesus is going to march right in and he's going to take over and then you get to verse 6 and it says for to us a child is born. You're like what? Like world peace, like delivered us from all this mess, you know, war and darkness and oppression, and for to us a child is born, like what? Yeah, Jesus incarnate. But the second coming is different. That thing that you imagine when you read chapter eight, verse twenty, all the way to chapter nine, verse five, and then when you get to verse six and you're thinking, Yeah, he's gonna come by force and he's gonna take over and conquer. That's the second coming. This first coming was Jesus, meek and mild, the baby. But that second coming, it's different. He's already been on the cross. He's already been victorious. He's already given us the option for the last couple of thousand years, the patience, the long-suffering to receive him. This second coming, it's going to be different. Now we're going to dive deeper into verse 6 next week. It'll be more cheerful, it won't be a you know, war and stuff like that, so let's pray. Lord, we want to present the whole counsel of God and the entire word, Lord, and we don't want to sanitize Christmas. We realize, God, that you came to save us, and when something is worth saving, you're willing to do anything, even die yourself. And Lord, we realize that this is messy, this work of battling for souls, of bringing people out of darkness into light. And so Lord, I ask for courage and boldness for your church to go forward, to go do your work, to save lives, in Jesus' name.